0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on uh, this post-Day 1 RNC uh, edition of the program. And uh, I want to talk about uh, the first day of the Republican National Convention. Uh, I thought it was extremely well produced, and it was long on content, too. The content was as compelling as the presentation of it. And it really uh, began, the thematic, of course, being uh, that America is a land of promise, honoring the great American story by telling some great American stories, having some great Americans telling great American stories, which is always a helpful way to drive that brand. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, almost working back from the keynote of Tim Scott to Nikki Haley and uh, back to, uh, for example, Vernon Jones, the Democrat state rep from Georgia. Um, so many good stories. And why don't we start with Tim Scott? Because I thought he punctuated the evening very well. He gave a wonderful room temperature evisceration of Joe Biden. But he also told the story of his family and how it runs concurrent with the story of America. Uh, Tim Scott on um, coming up, uh, struggling a bit out of the gate, failing freshman year, high school.
2: I thought I had to use football to succeed in life and my focus on academics faded away. My freshman year, I failed out. I failed four subjects, Spanish, English, world geography, And even civics. Trust me, though, after seven years in the Senate, I know I'm not the only one in Congress who failed civics.
1: Zing. Good one. Good laugh line. And uh, Tim Scott is a man of good humor. I came across. I think it's infectious, which is why he was the perfect choice to keynote the evening, which was, you know, as much as you want to talk about generic being a land of promise, honoring the great American story. It was also about the idea that um, America can be a colorblind society. We can judge people on their, their character and their behavior and not on their skin color or some other non-behavioral characteristic. We can celebrate the advances we've made while recognizing from where we came and also recognizing that it's still a work in progress. And that was uh, part of Tim Scott's point when he said this.
2: We are not fully where we want to be, but I thank God almighty we are not where we used to be. We are always striving to be better when we stumble and we will. Right.
1: Uh, We are always striving to be better. We're not where we want to be when it comes to race relations, because, again, don't take that across the board that the most advanced or the latest point in time is the most advanced point in time. It uh, is in the terms of race relations in many respects. It is not in respect to some other matters, for example, the status of the family. Our commitment to God, those things have seemed to atrophy over the years. So the most uh, recent point in time, not necessarily the most advanced, but uh, on the score of race relations, of course, agree with Tim Scott. We're not fully where we want to be, but thank God almighty, we're not where we used to be. And that goes right to the heart of the Democrats' attempt to forever keep America mentally in 1963 Selma pretend that we're still there when we're so clearly not. Uh, Scott um, uh, also offered uh, this in terms of just thinking about his family's story, his personal story, combined with his family's, concurrent with America's story that we're not where we used to be.
2: My grandfather's 99th birthday would have been tomorrow. Growing up, he had to cross the street if a white person was coming. He suffered the indignity of being forced out of school as a third grader to pick cotton, and he never learned to read or write. Yet, he lived long enough to see his grandson become the first African American to be elected to both the United States House and the United States Senate in the history of this country. Our family went from cotton to Congress in one lifetime. And that's why I believe the next American century can be better than the last from
1: cotton to Congress in one lifetime. That does give some perspective, doesn't it? Vernon Jones, the state rep from Georgia, friend of the show, a Democrat, does not leave the party. He still considers himself a Democrat. He was thinking about leaving and he said, no, the heck with it. I'm not leaving. I'm just going to be who I am with the D label. Okay, fine. Uh, He has a story, too. From cotton to Congress for Tim Scott in one lifetime from uh, point A to point B in Vernon Jones' life.
2: My parents, Robin and Rufus Jones, built with their own hands a four-room cinder block home with no indoor plumbing. They had very limited education, but they instilled in us a strong work ethic that drove me from those tobacco fields of North Carolina to those hallowed halls of the Georgia General Assembly. My parents taught me if I believed in God worked hard, and treated every person fairly, there was no limit to what we could achieve.
1: From Cotton to Congress, from the tobacco fields of North Carolina to the hallowed halls of the Georgia State House, Good stories. Uh, they didn't say explicitly what Nikki Haley did, but I think they would agree. While there are racists in America, America is not racist. It is not hardwired into our DNA as the... Democrat socialists who convened last week would have you believe and uh, again Nikki Haley also the daughter of immigrants told her story but uh, started out making something explicit
3: in much of the Democratic Party. It's now fashionable to say that America is racist. That is a lie. America is not a racist country. This is personal for me. I am the proud daughter of Indian immigrants. They came to America and settled in a small southern town. My father wore a turban. My mother wore a sari. I was a brown girl in a black and white world.
1: And um, that uh, transitions as we're working backward. We're a little bit all over the place, but it it, uh, speaks to how nicely the lineup was able to hit upon similar points, advance the market position but from different angles because they've lived different lives. Uh, Herschel Walker, the Heisman Trophy winner, pro football player, um, he spoke about this issue, America not being racist, uh, through the context of his personal relationship with President Trump, talking about their 37-year relationship. And uh, while the other speakers were talking about our country writ large, uh, Herschel Walker was tackling the charge... As it pertains to Trump specifically,
4: the worst one is racist. I take it as a personal insult that people would think I've had a 37-year friendship with the racists. People who think that don't know what they're talking about. Growing up in the Deep South, I've seen racism up close. I know what it is, and it isn't Donald Trump. Just because someone loves and respects the flag, our national anthem, and our country, doesn't mean they don't care about social justice. I care about all those things. So does Donald Trump.
1: And, uh, and then, uh, the, the, of course, the little vignette that he told of Trump's personal stories throughout their 37-year personal relationship. Um, the, the Trump and Herschel Walker with families in tow at Disney World is just fantastic.
4: One time, I planned to take his kids to Disney World with my family. At the last minute, Donald said he'd like to join us. So there he was, in a business suit, on uh is a small world ride.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> the visual is uh jarring, if nothing else. It sounds like something that would be from uh apprentice or celebrity apprentice, I guess, in the case of Herschel Walker. So uh yeah, maybe um maybe they could reprise that. But uh, one thing that uh, President Trump should do is attach Herschel Walker to his hip, lead blocker, let's say, for the next seventy days. I think Herschel Walker would be a great campaign surrogate. We've heard from him a little bit more frequently in recent weeks. Uh, Remember, it was just a few weeks ago where he was offering to fly anyone who wanted to a country where they don't have police to see how they like it in actual practice versus in, uh, in theory or rhetorical posturing. Uh, And so it was great to see him also be willing to stand up and I'm sure take the heat he's going to take within sports circles, To offer the commentary he offered, but that's what men of principle do when asked by a friend to do something. 37-year relationship. You think Herschel Walker knows Donald Trump? Sounds like he does, doesn't it? Sounds like he's real comfortable, doesn't it? It tells you something, and Herschel Walker is a fantastic surrogate for the campaign, as were all of the other speakers that we heard from. When we come back, I want to transition to talking about opportunity and The idea that it is equal opportunity under the law, just as there there should be equal protection under the law. Well, let's talk about the protection piece here from Andrew Pollack, who lost a daughter in the Parkland high school massacre, as well as the McCloskeys in St. Louis, who defended themselves uh, when the mob was at the gate, quite literally more right after this.
0: Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to the show. Just doing a little bit of uh, post-mortem on day one of the RNC. We talked about um, some of the land of opportunity commentary The uh, getting beyond race commentary from Nikki Haley and Herschel Walker and, uh, of course, Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott and state representative Georgia State Representative Vernon Jones. Now, I want to move to um, talking about equal protection under the law, equal opportunity under the law, equal protection under the law. And this brings us uh, really first and foremost to Andrew Pollack. Uh, we've had him on, uh, my program, uh, morning program in Chicago before I started this one, when he released a book uh, detailing his experiences to try to improve school safety in the wake of the murder of his daughter Meadow at Parkland High School on that fateful, uh, February day. And, uh, you know, hearing the story again and the way he tells it in no uncertain terms was emotional, even though I've heard it before, um, when he delivered it at the RNC on Monday night.
5: One of the seniors walking in the hallways that day was my beautiful daughter, Meadow. She was just months away from graduating and beginning a new life. We were so proud of the woman she had become. But in the hallway on that third floor, the gunman saw Meadow and shot her down the hallway, hitting her four times. After she was shot and on the floor, she crawled over to another student, a freshman girl, to protect her. She draped her body over her, and then the scumbag gunman shot my daughter at point-blank range five more times, killing Meadow and the girl she was shielding.
1: It's just brutal, um, particularly with the vividness in which Mr. Pollock details it. He uh, then uh, talked about going to the White House to meet Trump. You know, he wasn't really in the mood to um, engage in political theater, but there was an opportunity to meet with President Trump one-on-one to discuss what should be done in the wake of that massacre at that high school. And so he took
5: it. I never wanted this to become a political spectacle, but it did. I never wanted to meet the president like this, but I did. I was invited to the White House. The truth is, I had just buried my daughter that week. I really wasn't interested in public events like a tour or a photo op. I was interested in answers and solutions. So if the president wanted to meet me personally, I said I'd go. They said, of course, that was his plan. At the White House, my family and I sat with the president in the Oval Office and told him about Meadow. I told him what we knew. I told him that his administration needed to take a closer look at what went wrong and why. And I got to see who President Trump really is. He's a good man and a great listener. And he cuts through the BS. Then the president did what he said he would do. He took action. He formed a school safety commission that issued dozens of recommendations to make schools safer. But I'll bet you never heard about that. Instead, the media turned my daughter's murder into a coordinated attack on President Trump, Republicans, and our Second Amendment. In fact, when President Trump asked me and other parents of children that were murdered in school shootings to join him as he announced the commission's findings, the media's first question wasn't about protecting kids. Shockingly, they asked about the government shutdown. President Trump turned to me appalled and said, Andy, can you believe these people? We're trying to talk about school safety, and this is what they do.
1: And that's who they are. This is uh, really important because it ties back to what we're experiencing in real time. Mr. Pollack wasn't there just for sentimental reasons to talk about his daughter, particularly when so many people aren't in school. I guess that's one way to prevent school shootings. But it's to talk about ideology over rationality and the ideology that was afoot in schools still is in many places under the Obama administration, restorative justice. We're going to end the so-called school to prison pipeline by not punishing students for bad behavior, no matter how bad the behavior. We don't want to enlist police. And we've gone from not wanting to enlist police to kicking police out of schools, to defunding police in the larger community. And it started with this restorative justice bull jive at places like Parkland High School. And that was under Obama and Biden. And Mr. Pollack addressed that straight
5: away. The gunman had threatened to kill his classmates before. He had threatened to rape them. He had threatened to shoot up the school. Every red flag you could imagine. But the school didn't just miss these red flags. They knowingly ignored them. Far-left Democrats in our school district made this shooting possible because they implemented something they called restorative justice. This policy, which really just blames teachers for students' failures, puts kids and teachers at risk and makes shootings more likely. But it was billed as a pioneering approach to discipline and safety. I was just fine with the old approach to discipline and safety. It was called discipline and safety. But the Obama Biden administration took Parkland's bad policies and forced them into schools across America.
1: And uh, President Trump walked that back in. That doesn't mean that doesn't exist in some form or fashion, schools around the country. But he rescinded the administrative guidance on the issue. And uh, Pollock had a message for Joe Biden. And you recall something perhaps you didn't. Um, including what Joe Biden didn't recall.
5: It's hard to tell how much Mr. Biden understands about what happened at Parkland. Mr. Biden has campaigned on bringing back restorative justice. As part of as part of his unity platform with Bernie Sanders and has pledged to implement in school districts across America. But he doesn't even seem to know when this shooting happened. He said that he was vice president when it happened, but he wasn't. Mr. Biden may not know when my daughter was murdered, but I do. February 14th, 2018. Mr. Biden may not know that these policies make shootings more likely, but I do. Mr. Biden may not know who was vice president that day, but I do. It wasn't Joe Biden. It was Mike Pence. Thank God. And I know who the president was, too. It wasn't Barack Obama. It was President Donald J. Trump. And he took action.
1: Mr. Biden may not remember when my daughter was murdered, but I do. It's chilling. Which brings us over to Mark and Patty McCloskey, the couple that uh, brandished weapons to protect their refurbished castle in suburban St. Louis when the barbarians were literally at and through the gate. Uh, They came on to uh, share their story and started off with some good humor, Patty,
2: particularly. Good evening, America. We are Mark and Patty McCloskey. We're speaking to you tonight from St. Louis, Missouri, where just weeks ago you may have seen us defending our home as a mob of protesters descended on our neighborhood.
6: America is such a great country that not only do you have the right to own a gun and use it to defend yourself, but thousands of Americans will offer you free advice on how to use it. At least that's what we experienced.
1: Yeah, right, because they were a little bit loosey-goosey with uh, where the barrels were pointing and so forth. But uh, nonetheless, uh, Mark McCloskey makes the salient point here. Again, ideology over rationality, just as with restorative justice in schools, as discussed by Mr. Pollock.
6: What you saw happen to us could just as easily happen to any of you who are watching from quiet neighborhoods around our country. And that's what we want to speak to you about
2: tonight. That's exactly right whether it's the defunding of police, ending cash bail so criminals can be released back out on the streets the same day to riot again, or encouraging anarchy and chaos on our streets. It seems as if the Democrats no longer view the government's job as protecting honest citizens from criminals, but rather protecting criminals from honest citizens.
1: He's been in a courtroom before, but his point is uh, well taken. And if you don't believe him, just take a look at what's happening in Kenosha, Wisconsin, a community of 100,000 people, not a big metropolitan area, and what the response is from the public officials there, another Democrat controlled community for 20 years, as well as at the state level with Governor Evers. This is Dan Proff.
0: Podcast of the show
1: at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, Not that it was my favorite speech. In fact, it was my least favorite speech because I'm not sure that Kimberly Guilfoyle is over Gavin Newsom yet, and I don't like being yelled at. It was bizarre. But nonetheless, if you can... uh, Sort of work through the presentation that guilfoyle offered and uh, just listen to the substance as she spoke about california uh, there was some resonance to reality
7: if you want to see the socialist biden harris future for our country just take a look at california it is a place of immense wealth immeasurable innovation and immaculate environment and the Democrats turned it into a land of discarded heroin needles in parks, riots in streets, and blackouts in homes. In President Trump's America, we light things up.
1: Yes, okay. She is onto to something, though, with respect to California killing the many golden gooses they otherwise enjoy. For more on this, it's starting there, but we've got a lot to get to with him. We're pleased to be joined again by our friend Joel Kotkin, Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University, Executive Director of the Urban Reform Institute, and author of the um, indispensable new book, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism. Joel, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure. So with respect to California, you wrote about this recently, too, in your piece at City Journal about uh, Kamala's America. You write about California's one-party system. And, and it's important the way you break it down because you start to understand why it, things are the way they are. Revolves around well-organized, well-funded interests, including tech moguls, but also Hollywood executives, green nonprofits, the unions. That's what brought Harris. To, that's who brought Harris to the fore. But it's bigger than Harris. It also speaks to the feudal system in California writ large.
8: Definitely. What you have is is when you criticize what's happening in California, the progressives either ignore you or, or attack you although in one party state you can just ignore people, you know.
1: I know it and, well in Illinois, yes.
8: Yeah. I mean what you have is a situation where people who if there was a Republican government in California, they'd be screaming their heads off and be completely correct in doing so. But because California is, in quote, the model for the, for the Democratic Party, I mean, Democrats are not crazy enough to look at Bill de Blasio and say, well, that's, we want the country to look like New York. I don't think that. They're not that deluded. But California, because it does have some fantastic strengths. I mean, I've lived here now for 50 years. Um, I, you know, I think it's, it's got some great things about It's a more attractive model until you start looking at highest rate of poverty in the U.S., a third of all the welfare recipients, a diminishing home ownership rate, the movement of middle class families of all ethnic groups out of the state. Those are not signs of success. I'm sorry. Unless you're willing to confront these issues, your ideals of being a progressive have more to do with virtue signaling than reality.
1: Well, and and again, You have a flight from California. You have a flight from Illinois. You have a flight from New York. This will present itself after the census is completed in the loss of one or more congressional districts in all of those states with major cities, California with multiple major cities. I mean, isn't that the largest indictment of a place, particularly one that features so many Intrinsic benefits as California does, from the weather to the coastline, all the natural resources. That people are fleeing it to the desert, literally, like Arizona or Vegas.
8: Yeah, and, and they're even going to places like Texas, which are right, are not remotely as attractive. And and even to some extent, they're moving to places in the middle part of the country, on Tennessee, Kentucky, uh, Arkansas. I mean, it is astounding to see this and. I think fundamentally, what we're going to see is, is that California—it is inconceivable to a Californian like myself. I mean, I'm originally from New York, but you know, 50 years—I guess—I have a right to call myself a Californian—to <laughs> um, see our state lose a representative, to see the city of Los Angeles, where I spent 40 years. Losing population, the Bay Area is probably going to follow, certainly San Francisco is going to follow in the next few years. You're really talking about how do you screw that up? How do you make that not work? And then you're saying we have policies that haven't worked very well in California, and we're going to impose on the rest of the country. And here's the reality. The rest of the country can't remotely compete in a California-structured economy because you don't have the big tech companies. So, you know, who kind of bail out the budget, you know, um, on a regular basis, you don't have the appeal to people from around the world who want to live in in this place, you know, which has enormous uh, attractions. You take a California uh, economic uh, regulatory regime and put it into Texas or Illinois or Michigan, and you have a disaster.
1: I want to, I want to, I want to pick up right there because you've wrote to, you've written two pieces recently. One is uh, the twilight of great American cities is here. The other is the heartland's revival. And I, I would think that the first would preclude the second. So I want you to explain when we come back. And I'm sure he will be able to do that. Definitely, he's Joel Kotkin, the author of the Coming of Neo Feudalism. We'll be back with more right after that.
0: the Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Joel Cocken, Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University, ED of the Urban Reform Institute and author of The Coming of Neo-Feudalism. And Joel, as I was uh, saying before the break, uh, on the one hand, you're projecting the twilight of American cities is upon us. On the other hand, you wrote a piece for American Affairs Journal in which you talked about uh, the Heartland's coming revival. Well, the Heartland features some major cities too, Chicago, which is seeing people flee it like it's on fire because it has been Uh, (laughs) as well as, you know, I mean, other er, other Rust Belt uh, cities, uh, major cities or mid-major cities that are struggling as well. So reconcile those two theses for me.
8: First of all, what I was talking about were the primary cities in America, Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, all losing population. When I talked about heartland, it's not Chicago. I mean, what's interesting to me is the middle part of the country, that part of the country, so let just say the central time zone. Many of those cities are doing quite well. But the reality is that people are moving to the heartland, but they're not necessarily moving just to the big cities. They are in places like Texas. But a lot of times they're moving to smaller, medium-sized cities, and then they're also moving to cities that are not necessarily in the in the heartland, um, like cities like 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 Phoenix, as you mentioned. Um, they're they're moving there, but there are a lot of people moving to to small, mid-sized cities. What's really interesting is, for the last couple of years, we now have a stronger migration to cities under a million than cities un, uh, over a million. Yeah. Uh, we hadn't seen that. in I, I can't even recall ever seeing that.
1: And and um, and, and, and it, it's, it, you know, give, give us your handle on on the combination of factors that you think are, is driving it. Is it simply just basically cost of living versus opportunity combined now with public safety?
8: Um, I would say there are several things. One is public safety, but in two senses. One dense urban areas have a fatality rate about three times those of less dense areas and, and eight times those of rural areas so although there are outbreaks in small towns and there are outbreaks in some isolated areas like native american uh, reservations for instance in parts of the uh, the rio grande valley the reality is that from a public health point of view if you're not taking transit and you're not living in crowded housing your chances of, of, of getting uh, COVID and particularly getting very sick or even dying uh, are much less. So there's that issue. Then we have this new issue, which is some one that we actually kind of thought had disappeared, which was the crime issue, which had, um, you know, I'm old enough to remember living in New York in the early seventies, late sixties, early seventies. And, you know, you, you were constantly looking to see if somebody was about to, to mug you. And, um, that is beginning to come back. That was something that um, we thought we had figured out how to keep under control, and now we are just you know, allowing it to happen. You know, with take people getting, you know, being, uh, even with, with serious uh, in, um, uh, charges against them, are, are being, you know, let out. You know, it is no question in my mind that, that looting is now becoming uh, uh, directly linked with, 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 the, with the protests. Uh, with with the looters, sometimes seems to be, you know, the the protesters open open the field, and then the,
1: the yeah synchronized yeah right. It, well, and and here's the thing too. You know, we played this clip from Ice Cube, of all people, uh, yesterday on the show. I mean, here's a a, a gentleman whose net worth is uh, north of 150 million dollars, like his rap career and his acting career, and he sort of has some of this. I think he's starting to starting to piece it together. But there's a real disconnect. On the one hand, he says 42 percent of black businesses may close in part because of violence, in part because of the lockdowns. Uh, But his response is sort of to go back to the same old um, governed by color programs uh, that have failed over the last 50 years. So on the one hand, he sees what is being wrought. But he doesn't want to ascribe responsibility to the people who are making the decisions that are driving these consequences. And I just wonder if um, you agree with something that I've said. This has been more about um, racial cohesion than specifically about uh, peace in our streets and and um, and sort of a restoration of a common set of principles. And frankly, bringing down these urban feudal systems that you write about. Uh, And that it it will necessarily have to be led by black Americans. Um, They're going to have to do the uh, yeoman's work, to borrow a a word that you use in your book, to uh, to provide leadership here because they have a moral standing that, frankly, in the minds of many, someone like me doesn't have.
8: I wrote a book and I tried to understand why do ethnic groups succeed. One of the things that came out very clearly in that is that ultimately if you sit around and wait for white people – to have the, in quote, correct racial views and acknowledge how horrible, you know, their ancestors were, although my ancestors were living in the shtetl in Russia and never saw a black person until they got to New York in, in 1910. But the reality is groups succeed through their own devices, you know, mm-hmm. discipline, marriage, family, you know, uh, business ownership and and, and African Americans have had wonderful examples of this on in Durham, North Carolina in in, in, in in black communities on Central Avenue in Los Angeles, thriving business communities, thriving um, universities and, and you build up those institutions and then they can't this is what the look. you think of here in the state of California. The most discriminated group in the state of California is not African-Americans. Asians. Not Hispanics. It's been Asians. Mm -hmm. Asians have been barred from owning land. They've had pogroms against them here in the state of California, okay? What is the most successful ethnic group in the state of California? Asians. Why is that? Hard work, education, family, um, willingness to to defer gratification – and those are the very same things. And, you know, I'm going I'm to combine three very different people in this um, from the African-American uh, perspective. Booker T. Washington, Marcus Garvey, and Malcolm X. All of them said the exact same thing, which is you have to improve yourself inside. You can't wait for, the, you know, for having, you know, sort of mass re-education camps to get white people to, to think the way you want them to think. That doesn't work. Ultimately, by the way, it can't work because at the end of the day, most people, even millennials, do not want to hate themselves.
1: He is Joel Cotkin. He is the presidential fellow in urban futures at Chapman University, ED of the Urban Reform Institute, and author of the book, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism. Joel, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
8: Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
1: Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. We'll get into this a little bit more when we talk to Jerry Wayne next hour, the gentleman in uh, Michigan who, uh, back during the primary, confronted Joe Biden about Second Amendment rights. Uh, Before we uh, talk to Jerry Wayne next hour, though, I want to pay particular attention to this and level this individual up for some national attention that he so richly deserves as a de facto member of the Socialist Spice Girls. That's what I term them, otherwise known as the squad in popular parlance. Well, the guy I'm talking about who's a de facto member, an honorary member, Sean Caston, who is a Democrat socialist, Green New Deal, eliminate private health insurance acolyte, who represents suburban Chicago, the west and northwest suburbs of Chicago, a seat that was held by Henry Hyde and then Peter Roskam for the better part of the last four decades. One of those uh, suburban seats that swung in 2018 amid the Sort of P hat backlash against Trump, if you will. Sean Caston was on a Students for Biden-Harris call as the celebrity guest to talk to college kids, I guess, about Biden-Harris. And he was asked about guns. Listen to Sean Caston's response on guns, both on the merits, but even more importantly, even more importantly, what he has to say about gun owners. You won't get a majority of Democrats on this, much less a majority of politicians. But
9: I would love to see us go back, reread Justice John Paul Stevens' dissent in the Heller versus D.C. case, and, and insist on being strict constitutional originalists. Because what Justice Stevens said in that case was that the, when, when our Constitution was written, we had some states like Vermont that said everybody can have a gun, and our founders intentionally chose not to do that. And that whole well-regulated, well-regulated militia bit at the start was because our founders were also sitting there having just fought a war where most of the soldiers in the, in the Continental Army didn't know how to shoot straight, didn't know how to maintain their gun, and we didn't have an income tax structure, so we didn't know how to, how to maintain a standing army. And so their whole idea was that a well-regulated militia, which was going to be a thing where people could drill in order to defend the country, was the reason why we needed to have guns. And if you are a constitutional originalist, Unless you're a member of a well-regulated militia, tell me why you need to own a gun, right? Mm -hmm. Having small genitals is not a sufficient reason
1: to own a gun. Just to be clear, tell me why you need to own a gun. Having small genitals is not a sufficient reason to own a gun. That's right up there with deplorables and credulous boomer rubes, isn't it? Sean Casson, originalist, what a joke. I mean, he's a make it up as you go along. Constitutionalist in quotation marks. He's wrong on American history. He is wrong on the Constitution, as Scalia so nicely elucidated in the Heller decision. John Paul Stevens, oh, by the way, remember the op-ed he wrote after he had stepped down from the bench and before he passed away about repealing the Second Amendment. So that's where Sean Caston is, and that's where the Democrat socialists actually are. And then the ridicule to suggest that anybody wants to own a gun or anybody who does own guns is just compensating for their manhood. That's the level of intellect you have. And we're going to find out if they're... Are uh, b- b- But a few men left in suburban America, including in Sean Castan's district, come November 3rd. But if he loses, trace it back to everything possible that was done to amplify this comment and to wake some people up, for goodness sakes. This is Dan Proft.
0: This is The Dan Proft Show.
1: Twitter at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Uh, America's cities were on the docket on day one of the RNC, beginning with Kim Klasik, who is that uh, GOP congressional candidate running for the vacancy created by Elijah Cummings' death. She's running against Kweezy and Fume, former NAACP head, created that viral video we talked about last week on this show, and she had another viral moment as far as I'm concerned. Very tight two minutes that she offered,
10: and like Shirley Chisholm. I'm unbought and unbossed. Let me remind you, the Democrats have controlled this part of Baltimore City for over 50 years. And they have run this beautiful place right into the ground. Abandoned buildings, liquor stores in every corner, drug addicts, guns on the street. That's now the norm in many neighborhoods. You'd think Maryland taxpayers would be getting a whole lot since our taxes are out of control. Instead, we're paying for decades of incompetence and corruption. Sadly, the same cycle of decay exists in many of America's Democrat-run cities. And yet the Democrats still assume that black people will vote for them, no matter how much they let us down and take us for granted. We're sick of it. We're not going to take it anymore. The days of blindly supporting the Democrats are coming to an end. In Baltimore, we have the highest number of black Republicans in the entire country running for office this election cycle. Joe Biden believes we can't think for ourselves, that the color of someone's skin dictates their political views. We're not buying the lies anymore. You and your party have neglected us for far too long. We want safety in our neighborhoods. We want to make the most of the federal opportunity zone I'm standing in right now in West Baltimore. We want higher paying jobs and more business opportunities. We want lower taxes. We want school choice. We want a chance to get ahead, not just get by. That's what President Trump promised. And that's what President Trump delivered.
1: It was uh, very solid. She's just a, a very good communicator, very succinct and to the point. It's very clear. Uh, And I hope she's right that uh, those days are coming to an end where uh, you can just expect that uh, black Americans will support Democrats at a 90 percent clip. Nikki Haley also addressed this in part, took it from a different angle, which is good.
3: That's why it's so tragic to see so much of the Democratic Party turning a blind eye towards riots and rage. The American people know we can do better. And of course, we value and respect every black life. The black cops who've been shot in the line of duty, they matter. The black small business owners who've watched their life's work go up in flames, they matter. The black kids who've been gunned down on the playground, their lives matter too. And their lives are being ruined and stolen by the violence on our streets. It doesn't have to be like this.
1: That is not something you're hearing from Governor Evers in Wisconsin. It's not something you're hearing from local officials. They're basically doing what you've seen in other big cities, which is full-on pander to the barbarians. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by former Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark. Gentlemen, known to be succinct and to the point as well. Uh, Sheriff Clark, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Uh, I should also mention uh, your book as well, Cop Under Fire, Moving Beyond Hashtags of Race, Crime and Politics for a Better America. Give us uh, your view on what you've heard from since it's, you know, you're basically near your old stomping grounds there in Milwaukee County. I know you're still up there your reaction to what's happening in Kenosha and the response from the mayor, from the governor, from the uh, elected officials?
11: First of all, you can keep up with me and my website, americasheriff.com. You know, we're getting the usual political speak. When you deal with politicians, you get political behavior and most political behavior doesn't really serve people well. I like what Nikki Haley said. I just listened to the clip. That's the stuff that I point out that, you know, everyone on the left and, and I know some people, they say, well, you know, let's not make this political, It's extremely political, and to think that it's not is dangerously naive. So you have the Wisconsin governor coming out, jumping to conclusions. He doesn't know any of the facts. He admitted that, but then he goes and he pops off at the mouth and he pours gas on a smoldering grass fire. Totally irresponsible. When you're some street turd, you can talk like that. If you're Al Sharpton, Sean King, we expect that sort of irresponsible rhetoric coming out of their mouths. But when you're a governor, when you're a mayor, and you hold some other high-profile position, you have to act responsibly. You calm the waters. You don't fan the flames. So I'm not surprised at this. And this isn't because Tony Evers is inexperienced. This is his first term. He's in over his head. And he's in this for the same reasons... That many of the other people, the people running for these Democrat positions are in it for. They want to fan the flames of racial animosity to stoke up and energize the black vote. They realize, and this is why I think it's sick, that it gets very emotional when it comes to this sort of stuff, issues of race for black people, all right, because of a long history. But we've come a long way. And instead of talking about how this country has gotten better, what do they do? They go back to the days that, you know, there aren't too many people around today that were living back then anyway. So you get these police shootings and they've always served as an incendiary device uh, for the left to stoke up anger, highly irresponsible. We've seen this before. We're going to continue to see it at least through November.
1: Uh, the other side of the uh, criminal justice system too, prosecution. Of course, we've had this challenge in Chicago with Kim Fox. Uh, she's one of those, uh, state's attorneys or district attorneys around the country that, um, Believes in a culture of non prosecution, we have Sy Vance, the manhattan d a arguing against broken windows in the New York Daily News yesterday. So I wonder if you think that broken windows policing and prosecuting is the path back to civilization for these big cities, whether some of the ideologues in charge want to believe it or not.
11: Without a doubt, it's the only way you can get the attention of the criminal element to let them know that there are going to be quick and severe uh, sanctions and punishment for their unlawful, their criminal behavior. This catch and release doesn't work. This assists the criminal element, the same with the prosecutor out in Portland, who's releasing thousands of people with no charges. What I would do is I would get together with the U.S. attorney's offices, and I would start, when these arrests are made, I would send them the federal route. Let them go for federal charges. There are plenty of laws in the federal code to deal with this sort of behavior. There is a federal inciting a riot or participating in one that calls for five years federal prison upon conviction. You have a better chance of certainty in terms of these arrests that you make that something's going to happen to him. If you send him through the state attorney's office right now, the Cook County state attorney, nothing's going to happen. Everybody has to be on the same page. That has to be part of the plan too.
1: I wanted to get your reaction to something that Jamil Hill said. She's not just a sportscaster anymore. She's been elevated to a writer at the Atlantic. So we have to take her seriously. I'm told uh, she tweeted out um, reading uh, Isabel Wilkerson's new book Cased. And if you, we're of the opinion that the United States wasn't nearly as bad as Nazi Germany. How wrong you are. And um, that's the uh, response you get from the deep thinkers at uh, pl- places like the Atlantic. We're Nazi Germany. And this is the rationalization you're hearing from Black Lives Matter activists as well as other professional agitators that uh, America is irredeemable. It's a bad place. You heard at the DNC last week. And so this is justified. This is what Nicole Hannah-Jones of the 1619 Project calls symbolic takings and the like.
11: Well, it's all nonsense. First of all, Hill Hill's an idiot. We give her too much credit. She's a sports journalist, for heaven's sakes. She doesn't know anything beyond the final score of a game and who hit a jumper to win the game. And for us to listen and take... (laughs) You know, political advice from someone like that, I'm embarrassed by something like that. I'm ashamed to even be commenting on something that comes out of the mouth of garbage that comes out of the mouth of Jamel Hill, for heaven's sake.
1: But this turns around and gets repeated by people in actual elective offices with actual political power, actual law enforcement responsibilities, you know?
11: Well, that's why I said when you deal with politicians, she's not, but when you say it's repeated by people in political positions, when you deal with politicians, you get political behavior. Most of these individuals, you know, they're not really deep thinkers either, if you will, they're opportunists. All right. Mm -hmm. What's going to get them some votes? What's going to stoke people up? And then they just repeat what somebody regurgitate what somebody else says. None of them have their own original thought on this stuff. That makes any sense based on any research and data. They can't cite Well, this site here that I read some book, not from some, race baiter, but by some intellectual individual and and recite something from there. Now, not many of these politicians can hear. Uh,
1: As somebody who's been in Milwaukee County for many decades now, uh, knows the community very well. how, How does this play? How does what we're seeing in Kenosha play, do you think, in the suburbs of Milwaukee, among the law abiding in Wisconsin generally? Because obviously this is against the backdrop of a presidential election.
11: Yeah, well, it's starting to spread, and that's what you're seeing here. By the way, I'm born and raised in Milwaukee County. Uh, but you are it, it's, it's going to spread. It's, it's like water. It seeks its own level. Okay. You can only hold water out for so long. You know, when you got floodwaters and things like that, water trying to get into your basement. You, you do the best you can, but at some point, the water is going to find its way in. And so the suburban areas around Milwaukee are starting to pay attention because some of these uh, riots and these violent demonstrations are now starting to come out to their retail areas and their neighborhoods So they're very concerned. And that's why I said you have to get your arms around this damn thing early to keep it from spreading.
1: He is former Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark, author of Cop Under Fire, moving beyond hashtags of race, crime and politics for a better America. Also, his website where you can follow him and his writings on these topics we've been discussing, americasheriff.com. Sheriff Clark, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it.
11: My pleasure.
0: Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Jacob Blake, Kacen, and uh, Kenosha report from his dad that he's paralyzed. Also, that he was shot eight Eight times, that's what his dad said. Yesterday we were told that it was he was shot once, so this is the fog of war stuff where you just report what you understand to be true, knowing that some of it's likely to be corrected because there's so much conjecture running around, uh, flying around, and you don't have people who actually are investigating, commenting with any specifics, so this is the point. And there's also new video out that shows the reverse angle on the car, It shows him down on the ground with cops trying to keep him on the ground. On the passenger side, back wheel, he gets away from them somehow. That's too distant to really see uh, with any clarity. But he gets away from them somehow. That's when he walks around the front of the car to the driver's side with the cops following him around. And then he opens the door, reaches for something. He gets shot. That's what we know. Okay. Uh, We also know this, that five million Americans became first-time gun owners in twenty twenty five million. Uh, FBI National Instant Background Check System, uh, along with the National Shooting Sports Foundation, estimates there were more than 12 million guns bought in the first seven months of 2020, up more than 70 percent over the same time span in 2019. Seventy percent, probably the biggest surge in gun ownership in American history, according to David Harsani over at National Review, who's written a lot on the topic. Be interesting to see how that uh, impacts the national landscape, particularly when you have colossal asshats like Sean Casten sitting in a congressional seat in suburban Chicago. I cannot play this clip enough and I cannot believe this is not generating more attention. I don't know what's wrong with people. Five million new gun owners in America just in 2020. The estimates are a third to a half of Americans live in a household with a firearm. And this is the reaction you get from Sean Kasten on a Zoom town hall arguing against the Second Amendment, and I mean its existence, and then characterizing uh, gun owners in a particular way while he asks the rhetorical question, why would anybody need to own a gun? Why do you need to own a gun? As if need uh, is the threshold test. You won't get a majority of Democrats on this, much less a majority of
9: politicians. But I would love to see us go back, reread Justice John Paul Stevens' dissent in the Heller versus D.C. case, and and insist on being strict constitutional originalists. Because what Justice Stevens said in that case was that. The, when, when our Constitution was written, we had some states like Vermont that said everybody can have a gun, and our founders intentionally chose not to do that. And that whole well-regulated, well-regulated militia bit at the start was because our founders were also sitting there having just fought a war where most of the soldiers in the in the Continental Army didn't know how to shoot straight, didn't know how to maintain their gun, and we didn't have an income tax structure, so we didn't know how to how to maintain a standing army. And so their whole idea was that a well-regulated militia, which was going to be a thing where people could drill in order to defend the country, was the reason why we needed to have guns. And if you are a constitutional originalist, unless you're a member of a well-regulated militia, <laughs> tell, me, tell me why you need to own a gun, right? I mean, having small genitals is not a sufficient reason to own a gun.
1: <laughs> having small genitals is not a sufficient reason to own a gun. I would suggest that he may run into a bunch of guys who want to take out the yardstick. I'd certainly want to if I came across Sean Caston. I mean, are there any men other than my father left in the 6th Congressional District? I'll ask again. I don't know the answer. Uh, I know there's one uh, man left in Michigan. Uh, He had a tête-à-tête with Joe Biden when he had the opportunity to confront a sophist and a liar, fork-tongued political hack like Joe Biden. Uh, He uh, took full advantage of it and uh, got the disdain— directly from Joe Biden that Sean Caston will only give you remotely over a Zoom call. You know why? Because he's a wuss, to be polite. And uh, this was the exchange between one Jerry Wayne, union guy, gun owner, proud American, and then candidate Joe Biden.
12: You are actively trying to diminish you know, right? a second Amendment did right
13: to take away You're now, now, No, no, I shush. I, I support the Second Amendment. Second Amendment, just like right now, if right you yell, fire. That's not free speech. But from the very beginning, I have a shotgun, I have a 20-gauge, 12-gauge, my son's hunt. Guess what? You're not allowed to own any weapons. I'm not taking your gun away at all. You need 100 rounds? I did
12: win.
13: not say that. That's not true. I did not it's say that. It's a viral that. video. It's a viral video like the other ones they're putting out. There. They're saying they're lying. old boys.
12: Oh, he so it. Wait, 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 wait! Hey, take your yeah. AR, your AR-14s right.
13: and whatnot.
12: Okay, this is not okay.
2: Hold on, hold on. Right. Hey, let's you
13: keep,
12: well,
2: keep it real. There. There's, there. there's a lot of, of guys. guys a lot of guys
12: wanted.
0: Me,
11: I'm they, not they,
2: working. They, make,
0: make so Give me so a break. Don't so be such up on me. Hey, there's a lot of people. Hey, hey, hey! Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Are you going over, machine gun?
12: I said, guns? are you able to own one? Machine, $1.
0: Guns yeah. right. Right. No machine
12: guns. Are That's right. So
2: 15 How is in a
12: machine gun? No, it's not. System,
2: yeah, do, do you need 100 gun. rounds? Do you need 100 guns. rounds? There
12: are in America with handguns, and there are what you call assault rifles? Why are you advocating for
0: a assault rifles when people are buying the handguns? No.
1: AR-14, he most certainly meant AR-15, but it shows how little he knows about guns. This is the same guy, you know, you got to protect yourself, get a shotgun, take whatever, go on your porch and use a shotgun from your porch or something like this. Uh, and he also said uh, Jerry, Rain, Jerry Wayne was full of hooey, although he didn't use the word hooey. Jerry Wayne joins us now. He is a voter, gun owner, Michigan union worker and a uh, hard American patriot was not going to let Joe Biden get away with the usual rap that politicians get away with when they come to Gladhand at a, a union shop. Uh, Jerry, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, before we uh, get to Joe Biden, what do you think about Congressman? He's a congressman, you know, Sean Kasten, saying that owning, a, uh, having small genitals is not uh, a good enough reason to own a gun, as if that would be the only reason. You're compensating.
12: Yeah, I'd like to have a one-on-one conversation with that guy. I tell you that if that's the case, then count count me for having really small
1: genitals. then I guess um, <laughs> all right, you're man enough right. to admit it. Well, I'll tell you what: um, yeah. uh, if you do have that conversation with Sean Casten, please make sure somebody videos it, like they did the Joe Biden conversation, because I think it would be uh, oh, I'd love for that quite sporting. Yeah, and. Um, uh, how, what was the reaction after the video went viral and, and, you know, that exchange and you not letting Joe Biden uh, walk on the topic until he got a little bit out of sorts?
12: Yeah, so actually, believe it or not, the people around me were not too fond of me in that question because, you know, usually uh, unions are like vote blue no matter who, you know. Right. Um, but I think regardless of where the w- way your representatives want you to vote, I think it's important to ask these politicians questions. And ha- and actually seek out what they're actually going to be doing for you in office. And uh, I-, I did that. And I- nobody really understood what I what I had said at first, and uh, they were kind of against me. But once the video came out, and they understood what I asked, and uh, I've-, I've had a huge rally uh, nationwide. Actually, a lot of people are really uh, banding together and uh, standing against this guy.
1: Why did not you, as say uh, Vice President Biden, would you like to step outside and settle this? You think I'm full of hooey? I think you're full of hooey. Why don't we settle this like men right outside here?
12: Right. Well, he asked me to step outside. That's what, that's what he wanted to do. So it was more of a threatening comment there. Um, I, I didn't want to do that. You know, I'm no. a man of stature, and yes. I think that there is yes. a, a little bit more of a uh, of course uh, a, a little bit more of a cause there. But he also said he doesn't work for me. You know, I thought that was a little bit uh, telling there, you know, because like, he's talking to me. and he, He'd say the same thing to anybody else
1: in America. When we come back with uh, Jerry Wayne, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the state of Michigan, since it's such a key swing state, uh, both for the president as well as for the Senate. More with Jerry Wayne when we return.
0: Down on Main Street
2: Down on Main Street
0: At DanProftShow.com right. This is the Dan Proft Show. I'm reliable. I'm a very good listener. And I'm extremely funny. On the Salem Radio Network.
1: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Joe Biden confronter, Jerry Wayne. Great American. Union, uh, union man. And uh, before the break, we're discussing your clash with Joe Biden. I'm curious, how do your union mates feel about the election now that we've moved from Joe Biden, the candidate, to Joe Biden, the nominee, and thus the choice vis-a-vis Trump?
12: Yeah, actually, they are swinging hard, very hard. It's it's to the point to where I walk to the plant and people are coming out of the way to shake my hand.
1: Hmm.
12: So it's, it's definitely... You know, I appreciate it. I, I try I tried to get my work done still, but it's getting to the point to where uh it's kinda of hard to get my work done because so many people want to come up and say hi and get their picture taken and all that stuff. But this is this has happened uh, nationally. People are reached out to me all, all over the nation and uh that are union members and all the way from the Teamsters, Hype UAW and they uh they, they all agree. So I think there's a, definitely a, a major swing after this whole Joe Biden incident.
1: Uh, how about uh, SCIU? The teachers unions or asked me. Have you had any of those public sector unions reach out to you? No, not nothing yeah, at all. Yeah, trades a little bit different. Yeah, interesting. Um, what's yeah, your? What's your? Where in Michigan are you? What uh, community?
12: Um, I'm just south of Detroit. Um, I'm in uh, the in wayne, wayne, i'm still in wayne county same county as detroit
1: and so what's um, what, what's the feeling you know beyond your workplace and in, in the larger community since michigan was such an instrumental state in 16
12: yeah well i'm in the same district of, of debbie dingle and so long as held uh, democratic sanctuary uh in, in the nation i believe mm-hmm. and uh between her and her husband right. and uh that's where like ann arbor is and stuff like that so it's kind of left here but believe it or not um it, just talking to neighbors and stuff like that, the demographic is definitely swinging uh, away from the left. So who knows if they're going to be voting for Trump or Kanye West, but it seems <laughs> that most people are not, not going to Trump, right, excuse me, uh, to Biden. So, but, you know, this, this man's had a long time in office. You know, he's had a long time to represent people, and, and
1: I don't see it. Well, know, not, I don't see that what he's done for anybody. Not compared to John Dingell, though. I mean, you know, uh, right. 47 years, John D- D- Dingell was just getting his feet wet at that point.
12: That's right. I said, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And then he passed away and his wife ended up taking over. And um, I contemplated running against her, too. It was a little bit uh, too little, too late, though. But we'll see about next election as well. Um, I I, I, uh, I think a lot of people are asking me to get politically involved. And if that's what America needs me to do, then, then I'll definitely contemplate doing that.
1: Uh, what about a um, uh, bird's eye view for us from you on the Senate race? So really like John James, what kind of chance do you give him in Michigan?
12: Um, I, I, I don't give him much of a chance to honest with you, mm. uh, un, unfortunately. It, it is an absolute stronghold, and uh, it, it, it's quite left where I live. Um, you don't really see it because they're like in like the little city areas. Um, I'm more in the country, even though, believe it or not, uh, even though it's kind of left, I, I, there's still some country out here. And um, so the people in the country seem to be leaning a little bit more towards the right because, you know, they... they uh, they don't really have a choice anymore if they want to keep their rights. You know that's what it's come down to. It's either you want your rights or you don't. So this is sort you know, of that's yeah.
1: Down to. And so it's sort of interesting because I, so correct me then, uh, this supposition is the delta between a Trump and a John James, uh, you know, blue collar trade union guys. Is that why Trump can win Michigan and John James you don't think can?
12: Um, yeah, probably. Um, I just because what it, what it does come down to is I. We're having a situation in Michigan because of uh, the Electoral College, you know, like our governor is able to appoint Democratic nominees uh, there uh, to, for the Electoral College. So no matter, let's say that the entire state votes for Donald Trump, well, the Electoral College is still swing to the left.
1: Well, so that, that's kind yeah. of the situation that we're having here. Yeah. Um, so well, we'll, we'll, although if Trump wins Michigan, then there's not there's not much really. I mean, it's possible there's a scenario, but it's highly unlikely even somebody as ridiculous as Gretchen Whitmer could do much about that. And, and how is, how is, uh, how are people faring under Gretchen Whitmer's stewardship and her uh, COVID lockdown policies?
12: Um, there's very few people that I know that are, that are liking her right now. And I know there's like quite a few people that are talking, uh,
1: passing out petitions to,
12: uh, to get her out of office right now. And uh, there, there's uh, quite a few groups going up as not everybody's really prepared for this to, to, to happen. You know, this is, has happened quite quickly. Um, With with this order of tyranny. And so people are trying to get organized to actually get her out of office right now. And and I condone those people because uh, you're you're, you're really going against our constitutional rights when you close down churches. Uh,
1: Jerry Wayne, uh, voter, gun owner, Michigan union worker and Joe Biden confronter. Uh, Jerry, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
12: Uh, yeah if anybody would like to follow me I'm on Jerry Wayne AR14 on Instagram Facebook and Twitter and we've got a lot more things coming up
1: <laughs> Jerry, trying to give uh, give America a voice Jerry Wayne AR14 that's wonderful very good very nicely done Jerry thanks for joining us appreciate it
12: uh, thank you
0: listen, the more you'll know. This is is the Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to the show. I want to tackle this uh, piece that David French wrote. uh, David French of the Dispatch, formerly of National Review. Do pro-lifers who reject Trump have quote-unquote, blood on their hands. A French never-Trumper takes this up uh, in response to a tweet that suggested that um, he will have the blood of dead unborn children on his hands if Trump were to lose, uh, in part because of his opposition to Trump and uh, his many, many arguments on explaining his opposition to Trump and its legitimacy and the uh, Christian prism through which one must look at Trump and make a judgment call. Um, he, um, I, I'm not going to go so far as to say blood on his hands. I think that's a bit dramatic. But I, I think the more relevant question is, is a pro-lifer making the judicious decision to not support Trump because of disagreements over particular policies, a rejection of some of his life choices throughout his colorful life? and um, just a stylistic difference. I mean, Herschel Walker, in his remarks at Monday nights, day one of the convention, he addressed the whole uh, style issue with Trump that rubs people the wrong way.
4: He leaves nothing on the field. Some people don't like his style, the way he knocks down obstacles that get in the way of his goals. People on the opposing team didn't like when I ran over them either, but that's how you get the job done. I pray every night that God gives him more time. Give him four more years. He has accomplished so much almost all by himself on a constant attack, but there's still more work to be done. If you love America and want to make it better, Donald Trump is your president. He's my president, and I'm blessed to call him friend.
1: Uh, and it was uh, a great, uh, great offering from Herschel Walker yesterday, but that did not persuade David French, I'm sure. Here's the argument French makes about uh, the life issue and Trump and not participating in support of Trump, even though he's Nominated and had confirmed two pro-life judges, justices, of the Supreme Court, not to mention more than 200 federal judges. Let's not forget about that. He uh, makes five arguments. Presidents have been irrelevant to the abortion rate. It's a cultural phenomenon. Judges have been forces of stability, not change in abortion law. State legislators have had more influence on abortion than Congress. Even if Roe is overturned, abortion will be mostly unchanged in the U.S., And the pro-life movement has enormous cultural advantages. Yeah, without going into great depth on each one of those five planks, I I would concede some of that. The one thing, judges have been forces of stability, not change in abortion law. Well, um, that's true. It was like that with uh, gun control for a long time, too. And then the Heller and McDonald decisions came along and fundamentally changed the landscape. It was like that for a long time, too, with uh, unionization, forced unionization, fair share payments. And then the Janus case came along and uh, there was a watershed moment. It was like that with separate but unequal for, what, 56 years before Brown v. Board of Education came along. So things can be stable for a long time and then not so stable. And, for example, the prospect that the next president is more likely than not to be able to nominate between two and four Supreme Court justices will have a generational impact on the court and could could if it's Trump making those nominations have a generational impact precipitate a watershed moment on the issue of protection of unborn life too and that's not really tackled effectively uh, by French he's no no doubt he is right about the abortion rate being largely a cultural phenomenon and he talks about the cultural advantage where you find um, the U.S. abortion rate has reached a historic low as of 2017, down from 29 abortions per 1,000 women age 15 to 44 in the uh, the, the mid-70s, all the way down to 13 and a half. So uh, a decline of uh, more than uh, 100% in the intervening 30, well, 45 years, say. Um it's part America's birth rate has declined, but it's been nothing like the rate of decline in abortion rates since 1980. That's true. He um goes on to talk about presidents not really mattering. Well, obviously, they matter with the nomination of Supreme Court justices and federal judges. And um, those judges do turn out to matter. It could be on the margins for a while. And then all of a sudden it's uh, center cut. Uh, He uh, praised Trump for enacting new Title 10 regulations that require physical and financial separation of Title 10 projects from abortion related activities. It hasn't defunded Planned Parenthood. That's true. But it's, again, incremental progress. He suggested that if Roe v. Wade were overturned, that watershed moment came, that uh, abortion would be largely unchanged in the states Uh, Yeah, I'm not so sure about that, uh, particularly because of exactly the cultural phenomenon that he's otherwise referencing. State legislators are more effective than Congress. That's true, Um, and that's also why, going back to his notion that it would be the same if Roe v. Wade was overturned and states were free to craft their own regimes, seems like a not particularly compelling argument to me. But one of the things that he just suggests, generally speaking, though, that I really want to focus in on is uh, this idea that um, the best case scenario, all his five arguments taken as givens um, and and his best case scenario taken as given, which I think is a bit uh, understated. His best case scenario is 90 percent of the abortion legal regime remains in place. Well, let me ask this. Um, Say it's 1.2 to 1.5 million abortions a year. Uh, Is reducing the number of abortions annually in the United States by 120 to 150,000? Is that inconsequential? If the next POTUS gets to a point two to four Supreme Court justices, like I mentioned, not to mention the federal judges, Would we be at worst incrementally moving in the direction of life with Trump versus moving expeditiously in the direction of death with Biden, not just on the front end, unborn life, but also on the back end, death with dignity? The euthanasia movement. Additionally, it's not just unborn life. Uh, As I say, it's the full complement. It's just the full complement. So on the one hand, he calls pro-lifers absolutist when they criticize him for not supporting Trump. But he seems to take the position that if you can't get a whole loaf, you don't even bother with half a loaf. So who's really the absolutist? Yeah, I like David French, but um, his Trump derangement syndrome makes for some very strained arguments. And uh, on the issue of life, this is perhaps one of his most strained. This is Dan Proft.
0: You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
1: Welcome back to the show. Just updating the story out of uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin. The news this morning, according to Jacob Lake's father, is that he was paralyzed. The reporting yesterday was of the seven shots that fired only one head hit his back and that he was in stable but serious condition, still stable but serious condition. Now his father saying he was shot in the back eight times. So, again, uh, we'll update information as it becomes available with the caveat that we're just going based on particular sources and it's subject to change because we're really not getting definitive statements from investigators, much less public officials, whether the mayor of Kenosha or Governor Evers. And speaking of Governor Evers, and his lieutenant governor, Mandela Barnes. I know in being in Illinois, as I am, I don't have much standing to criticize the political choices of other states because it's perhaps uh, impossible to make worse decisions on elected officials than Illinois has made for the better part of my life. But where did they get this guy, Tony Evers? He uh, shows up yesterday to make a statement about the whole matter, and he doesn't make a statement about the matter. He doesn't even address... The case, he makes a generic statement about calling the Wisconsin legislature back into session the end of this month so as to uh, address reforms he proposed earlier in the summer that went uh, unacted upon. And he, by the way, he showed up in Bobby Jindal's dad's suit, if you remember Bobby Jindal's sort of infamous State of the Union response. And also, like he had just been yanked out of a lions club at some Wisconsin Supper Club. I mean listen to this guy.
8: Two months ago now, Lieutenant Governor Mandel and Barnes and I announced a package of legislation to increase accountability and transparency in policing in Wisconsin. This package invests in community violence interruption program and works to address the issue of inappropriate use of force by individuals in law enforcement, prohibit dangerous police practices, build upon the work of the Law Enforcement Standards Board, and strengthens accountability measures.
1: There's video now out today that shows a reverse on the car and shows that Jacob Blake was struggling with officers on the passenger side of the car. This is from some distance, so it's a little bit unclear. But you had multiple officers on the passenger side rear wheel area of the car that had peered Jacob Blake down. This is when he was allegedly tased. He gets up, he walks around the front of the car to open the driver's side door, and that's when the confrontation occurs with one of the officers trailing him, where he grabbed the back of his shirt. Jacob Blake reaches into the car to grab something, and the officer opens fire. Again, I'm not passing judgment on the matter because I still have so many unanswered questions. That's not the approach of Tony Evers, the governor, and his lieutenant governor, Mandela Barnes, as you heard. Mr. Blake, given that he had an outstanding warrant, and a criminal record and again it's not mayberry up there in kenosha it's a hundred thousand people but because he's had previous run-ins with police they probably that probably would have come up as they responded to the domestic call that put them at the scene in the first place so still more questions than answers it's worth noting how uninterested elected officials in kenosha and the state of wisconsin are at the state level the democrats in asking those questions or getting any answers they just have a story to tell
0: This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. website, you'll find podcast there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. RNC Night 1, the theme, Land of Promise, Honoring the Great American Story. This is a imperfect nation, but it is uh, still a land of opportunity. And that was um, most uh, deftly extolled by Tim Scott and Vernon Jones. Many of the speakers, actually, one that I don't think uh, got enough attention. She was a little bit earlier in the evening, but it's a different sort of uh, land of opportunity. It's a land of opportunity because it's a land of innovation and because the individual is a unit of analysis, not the community. Uh, We don't look at uh, American society through the prism of government, or at least we shouldn't. And Natalie Harp and her story uh, about um, the right to try that President Trump afforded her. The right to try turned out to be the right to life for Natalie Harp.
7: I should know, because I wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't for you. About five years ago, I was the victim of a notoriously deadly medical error. I survived, but only to be diagnosed with a rare and terminal bone cancer. You know, the Democrats love to talk about healthcare being a human right. But a right to what? Well, I'll tell you. To them, it's a right to marijuana, opioids, and the right to die with dignity, a politically correct way of saying assisted suicide. I was told I was a burden to my family and to my country, and that by choosing to die early, I'd actually be saving the lives of others by preserving resources for them rather than wasting them on a lost cause like myself. And when I failed the chemotherapies that were on the market, no one wanted me in their clinical trials. I'd make them look bad, They didn't give me the right to try experimental treatments, Mr. President. You did. And without you, I'd have died waiting for them to be approved.
1: Hmm. Anything to save one life. Isn't that what we're told by uh, the Democrat Socialists with respect to COVID-19? Except if it's in the womb, the life is in the womb, except if it's end of life or they decide that it's end of life. For more on uh, the topic of life, as well as um, other matters around uh, religious liberty. Bill McGurn has a good piece on Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and their disposition towards Catholics in particular in the Wall Street Journal. I want to discuss with Eric Metaxas, the host of the nationally syndicated Eric Metaxas Show and author of the book series Donald the Caveman, which includes the just released, like uh, today, uh, Donald and the Fake News in the Donald the Caveman series. Donald and the Fake News released today. Eric Metaxas, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
6: Well, I love being with you. And yes, today, Donald and the fake news. This is not one of my longer, more intellectual books. This is a humor book. But I got to tell you, we need humor at this time because the, if you look at the darkness, God commands us, you know, to, to look at uh, what is good and true and beautiful for the sake of our own souls because we will lose sight. When you listen to the lies, I tell you, listening to Natalie Harp last night, I got to tell you, it reminded me of that part in my own uh, biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The Nazis did the same thing. They would tell people that we're going to take your, we're going to euthanize your son or daughter so that we can preserve uh, the money and the resources for others who need it more, who can do more for the Third Reich. You hear this over and over in history, but the Nazis, I tell you, if anybody owns a copy of my Bonhoeffer book, you go to the to the T4 program. It is so chilling and similar to what we heard last night from Natalie Harb, and, and that is what we are facing. There are so many Americans and so many Christians who do not understand the nature of evil, because we've had it so good in America, we cannot imagine what is possible. And so, uh, you know, to be positive, I wrote the Donald and the Fake News, Donald drains the swamp and Donald builds the wall, because they're humor books. We need to celebrate what this president is doing. He's a bit of a caveman, but sometimes you need a bit of a caveman to get stuff done. And if we cannot laugh and if we cannot create humor and joy uh, in the midst of things, uh, you know, where we're sunk because it's all so depressing. We need to rejoice and we need to pray.
1: It's a, it's the best series since Rob Becker's uh, stand-up uh, defending the caveman. Remember that? Uh, that's good stuff. <laughs> uh, I've got an idea for your next book. You ready? Yeah. Uh, Donald and Herschel Walker go to Disney World and ride on the It's a Small World ride. <laughs>
6: Oh my gosh! The Herschel, there was so much last night that was, that was fantastic, and I, I never thought I'd, I'd, I'd be looking forward tonight too. It's amazing.
1: You know, also it's worth extolling our principles in a. Uh in a room temperature way, sort of the way that Tim Scott did last night. It's worth just being very matter-of-fact about the kind, of, the kind of civil society in which we, we want to live. I think most of us want to live. He did a good job of that. Jack Phillips, masterpiece cake shop, uh, cake artist, did a good job of that in USA Today last week, talking about what yeah. it's like to live in a tolerant society. And Bill McGurn does it as well when he asks the question in the Wall Street Journal, uh, reviewing Joe Biden's actual record on religious liberty as opposed to this, you know, Irish Catholic from Scranton, Pennsylvania, uh, visage he tries to promote. Uh, He writes, does McGurn, the issue today is no longer whether progressive dogmas from abortion and marriage equality to gender identity will prevail. Most already have. The question now is whether those who dissent from the new orthodoxy will be permitted to live their lives and run their institutions in accordance with those beliefs. It seems to me that um, Trump and the Republicans need to make it clear to people that may be a, a little bit ahead uh, in the clouds on the threat to religious liberty posed by the Marxist left that uh, this is on the ballot on November 3rd too.
6: Oh, listen, you you know uh, probably how big I am. That's my number one issue. As a Christian and American, I am amazed to see how we have had so much liberty in this country that most Americans are ignorant to the threats. The threats are very real. And listen, this is the natural thing that happens. If you take your eye off the ball, freedom goes away. Freedom is not a normal state of affairs. It's a gift from God, and we need to celebrate it. I mean, I in my book, If You Can Keep It, which is... Uh, not a humor book, but I talk about that because I think that, you know, my generation, your generation, we were not raised understanding the tremendous threat. We didn't live, you know, in the Cold War where you, where you have godless communism on the other side, you know, torturing uh, priests and nuns and imprisoning believers. And so we, we sort of have forgotten the evil on the other side. And I think, as I say, we need to make this generation aware of what happens if we do not defend freedom, if we do not vote. How many Christians do I know that said, oh, I didn't vote. Oh, I couldn't vote for a guy like Trump because blah, blah, blah. And I thought, do you understand that if the other side is elected because you didn't vote, do you have any idea you are guilty before God for allowing policies to harm the poor. If you really care about the poor and the urban poor, you, you need to vote. You need to understand that the policies and the administrations put in by one team are radically opposed to the administration policies put in by the other team. And I, I'm just stunned how many people have forgotten how important it is to vote, to be politically engaged, and to know what's going on. I mean, the reason I wrote Th- these uh, humor books on a, on a kid level is we need to rehearse the basics of what is freedom how does it work why is it wonderful why do we need to do what is necessary to drain the swamp. It's a type of tyranny, the swamp, to have a bureaucracy, a deep state that has grown and grown and grown. You, you know, you might as well have King George the 3rd We've forgotten these things. So I, I wrote this in a, on a kid's book level so that, you know, the adults, we can, we can laugh at the, at the jokes. But also we're getting something deeper. It's a sort of a parable form, a simple form to understand what does it mean to be free? What does it mean to to get freedom? What does it mean to protect freedom? uh, And what does it mean to deal with people who hate freedom? Because they, they would prefer to have their own little power, their fiefdoms. And so many people in the political class and in the media class, that's where they live. They live in that globalist elite world where they've got all kinds of privileges, and they look down their nose uh, at at those of us who are, you know, flyover country, uh, people who cling to their guns and Bibles. You know, they completely don't understand those people. They look at us like we're aliens.
1: Uh, I got Dan Donald the Caveman. Donald the Caveman, Breaks Americans out of COVID gulags. How about that after, <laughs> after the election?
6: Oh, we're uh, going to keep writing these books. I mean, I, I, I expect Trump to get a second term because people will vote and pray and fight. But the third one, Donald, and the fake news, I think it's the funniest. Like, we've just got so much stuff going on. And on our side, we need to laugh at what the other side is doing. If, if we can't do that, you know, we need to have some joy in the midst of the battle.
1: He is Eric Metaxas, host of the nationally syndicated Eric Metaxas Show and the new book in the Donald the Caveman series, Donald and the Fake News, that we were just discussing, which released today. Eric, thanks for joining us. Good luck with the book. Thank you.
0: Tell me what I don't like. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
1: Welcome back to the show. Uh, going back to day one of the RNC, uh, the uh, Trump appearances sprinkled throughout. I think they were appropriately sprinkled. The uh Trump gathering with uh, a, half a, dozen of Amer- a half a dozen Americans who were held hostage overseas in various countries that have been returned home thanks to the efforts of his administration. I thought that was really good stuff. Again, shows him interacting with regular people as a regular guy. And uh, empathetically, given the fact that these were Americans helped in- held in captivity away from their friends and their family in a foreign land. The other one was the uh, uh, frontline workers uh, in the era of covid nurses and police officers and custodians and uh, other personnel that he (laughs) that he uh, interacted with in one of the videos as well, thanking them for their work and a particularly great exchange between one Catholic nurse supervisor. And she and she talked about how much his leadership meant to her on the issue. whatever qualms you have about his leadership or not. Uh, But I thought even more persuasive than those exchanges and presentations with other people. It it was 45 seconds of clips from three governors, Cuomo of New York, Murphy of New Jersey, Newsom of California, that undermined about 75 percent of the Democrat National Convention from last week. Those three dem socialist governors praising the federal response during the height of the outbreak. Phil Murphy from the White House, New Jersey governor. Andrew Cuomo, we played it on this show before, an example of it. It, would, it happened on more than one occasion, talking about the remarkable response of the federal government. Gavin Newsom, perhaps, I, I think he may have been the first governor to, to laud President Trump's responsiveness, willingness to do whatever. Uh, the scrambling of the Navy medical ship for California, just as he did for New York, setting up the Javits Center for New York, all the ventilators sent to New Jersey in addition to New York. And, of course, they've all changed their tune, particularly Cuomo, who spoke at the Democrat National Democrat Socialist National Convention last week, changed their tune now where it was a, a catastrophe. He's, not, he's not, not not recognizing it's real and so on and so forth. And um, he's killed grandma and grandpa. Trump has. He's responsible for what transpired. But those governors in states that just those three states, which constitute a third of all COVID-19 fatalities in the country, they're not responsible. They did a wonderful job. And President Trump and his administration did a terrible job. Help me square the circle on that, won't you? Again, according to worldometers, 33 percent of deaths in the United States, just under 61,000, came from New York, New Jersey and California. And not only governors, Democrat governors, all the state houses of all three are controlled entirely by Democrat politicians as well. But it's it's Trump's fault, except even they weren't saying it was Trump's fault just five minutes ago when they needed backstop by the federal government. Well, more than backstop in the case of New York state. Isn't that true? Uh huh. The uh, RNC uh, featured uh, this video that. Uh spoke to uh, the president's leadership now this is propaganda just as you would get and did get from the democrats but nonetheless uh, president trump was addressing covid 19 right away and straight away
13: when the china virus invaded our country we launched the greatest mobilization of american society since world war ii patriots of every race color and creed rallied together to defeat the invisible enemy and save the lives of their fellow citizens. Today, our hearts overflow with appreciation for the incredible frontline workers who risk their own health and safety to keep America strong and safe. When crisis came, millions of everyday Americans rose to the challenge. In their actions, we see true greatness of the American character. We always find a way to victory. History will remember and celebrate the heroes of 2020 for as long as our great American flag waves over the land that we love. To every frontline worker, I offer the salute of a nation that is forever in your debt. Thank you. God bless you. And God bless America. And
1: uh, the key to that video, we, the heroes, not talking about himself, talking about other people, the frontline workers. What we did, how we responded, how we always do respond. We, not I. And as he did with those uh, frontline workers of various professional callings uh, in one of the video presentations, making it about other people and what they did when called upon to do it. And boy, contrast that. (laughs) I I noticed there weren't teachers in that group. Not to say that there aren't around the country. We're stepping up. But in so many places, you have school districts at war with parents and students. This this out of Tennessee is astounding. Rutherford County Schools in Tennessee. Asking parents to sign a form agreeing not to eavesdrop on kids virtual classes over concerns they could overhear confidential information. They could overhear confidential information about what? About who? What are you talking about? Uh, as a parent, I should be able to uh, walk into my kid's classroom if he or she were physically in a classroom at any time. I mean, this goes back to that uh, teacher from uh, the uh, math and science academy in Philadelphia who uh, tweeted out his concern about parents, brothers and sisters overseeing and overhearing what the kids were being instructed via Zoom in terms of, you know, interfering with the uh, I mean, not this weren't the words he used, but effectively, it was flowery language to convey what I'm about to convey, which is identitarian hustle politics. That's what he was saying. Uh, Lori Cardoza Moore is the founder of Proclaiming Justice to the Nations, telling uh, Fox and Friends this weekend, it's ridiculous. It's so hypocritical because they've been data mining our children for years, compliments of Common Core. What are they trying to hide? What's the problem? Why won't they let us sit in? Uh, said uh, uh, Miss Cardoza Moore, who's a homeschool mom of five. Obviously, because they're teaching our children propaganda, that they should not be teaching. They're trying to socialize our children, uh, trying to socialize in the sense of making them socialists, not socialize in the, ten, in, the, in the sense of making them uh, uh, you know, uh, more comfortable uh, social beings. Uh, it, it really is something. Uh, it seems to me like a lot of parents are getting broadsided by just how little their schools think of them and their role with their children there seems to be a lot of confusion have you noticed as to who has controlling authority over children is it the school district administrators and teachers or is it mom and dad this seems to be in controversy in a way that i think some parents are quite surprised don't you find and uh, i hearken back again to another theme to pull from day one of the RNC. Two words school choice. Mention repeatedly school choice. Uh, think again about whether or not you're trying to break your kids back into the schools they were going to now that you perhaps know a little bit more than you did prior to the lockdowns. Or it's time to uh, consider alternative options, whatever you can make work, whatever. Options at your disposal and certainly there would be a lot more options for a lot more folks if school choice were advanced. This is Dan Prof.
0: Love Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com.
1: Welcome back to the show, a front-page story in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. New thinking on COVID lockdowns, they're overly blunt and costly. You don't say, something that um, many people were saying from the outset. One study from economists at Indiana University and Ohio State find that the uh, lockdowns account for 60% of the loss of employment uh, during the period. That doesn't mean that it's uh, evenly distributed, because, of course, different states have chosen different Approaches from the beginning, as well as during the recent spike in cases, which has now substantially subsided. For example, Georgia, which uh, Governor Brian Kemp was charged with uh, human experimentation by the left, well, uh, Georgia is doing pretty well relative to Chicago and Illinois and much of the rest of the country. Seven point six percent unemployment rate in July, which is substantially below the national average. And although Georgia saw a surge in infections in June and July. The new cases have fallen 30 percent since July 26, hospitalizations by 23 percent and test positivity down from 13 percent to 9 percent. Kemp, attributing that to people learning to live with the virus. By the way, there's a good piece in Reason Magazine rebutting the New York Times account for the downward trend as approximately caused by these lockdown regulations. But is there something else that will still afflict us whenever it is we come out of the lockdowns more wholly. That's the topic in part of a, a piece in American Affairs Journal by Herman Mark Schwartz, who's a professor of the Department of Politics at the University of Virginia, author of Subprime Nation, American Power, Global Finance, and the Housing Bubble. And he joins us now. Professor Schwartz, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
14: Thank you. How are you
13: doing?
1: Good. Well, you uh, offer a uh, expansive look at uh, a change in corporate Profit strategies in the post-World War II era to present, as much as we want to talk about um, sort of the results of what we see happening in American society with respect to income inequality and other such political, socio political issues, there's not been a lot of talk about what may be driving some of those issues, which some in the political arena suggest need some sort of government remedy or certainly a policy discussion. And so you start there, you look at the change in firms' profit strategies and the organizational structures that were constructed by big companies in America, as well as companies that became big companies in America, to explain some of what's happening, including some of the malaise in certain sectors. Why don't you jump off from there?
14: Sure. The the two big changes here um, are that in the, let's say, before nineteen. Eighty nineteen ninety 1990, uh, companies used to be vertically integrated, which is to say they made much of what went into the products they sold, and the frontline ser- personnel that delivered services in the service sector were employees of large companies, and this had two effects. One was that even when these companies uh, had a very strong market position, position, ranging from oligopoly to sometimes monopoly, they typically would share some of their profits with those employees for all kinds of uh, reasons relating to getting good performance from employees um, and the fact that most of these companies were unionized and the second uh, characteristic of those companies was that to the extent that they got profits from things that were uh, monopolies um, they could use those profits uh, to, in, to cross-subsidize investments in physical capital and in other things that typically would drive uh, growth very strongly and post-1980, post-1990 that generally disappears and what you end up with is um, companies looking for some kind of monopoly they could exercise without having to have a lot of physical capital or have a big employee base and so what they did was construct a kind of three-level economy um, in which the companies at the top uh, that captured most of the profits did so by having some kind of intellectual property right a patent a trademark a brand Uh, or a copyright, and then they would uh, subcontract production of um, goods to companies that were physical capital intensive. Those companies would license the brand and slap it on the good, and then, again, typically the actual delivery of the service or the good that these companies produced uh, would be done by yet a third kind of company that was mostly labor intensive, lots of bodies. Um, And if you look at the distribution of profits across those companies, the ones at the top captured the bulk of the profits. The ones at the bottom um, typically were starved uh, of profit in terms of volume, and the consequences of that are the reverse of what we had uh, before roughly 1980, which is that the companies that typically would do the big investments um, that drive growth didn't have a lot of enough profit to make it worthwhile for them to do that, and the distribution of some part of profit to workers. Was concentrated only on the very small headcount, uh, the firms at the top. And if I can say one more thing, because I know this has already been a long answer. Well, let just, you know but, what. Yeah,
1: let's just hold it right there, and I'll let yeah. you say one more thing uh, after the break, because um, I, yeah, I want to I want to interject and, and ask a question too about what you're setting up with respect to um, this being. Uh, what I'm hearing you say, this is much more complicated than just the handle that a lot of people use. It's just uh, moving from a manufacturing to a service sector economy. There's some nuance here that it seems like you're getting into, which I want to explore further, more with Professor Herman Mark Schwartz from the University of
0: Virginia. Right oh, after
1: this.
0: Do the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
1: Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with Professor Herman Mark Schwartz. He's a professor of the Department of Politics at the University of Virginia and author of Subprime Nation, American Power, Global Finance, and the Housing Bubble. And uh, before the break, I mentioned to you, as you were describing what has changed in post-World War II in terms of how companies are set up, no longer vertically integrated, but sort of supply chained out, that um, that's uh, changed the profitability. And as you get further away from who controls the intellectual property, there is uh, less margin and thus less ability to invest, and thus there's more malaise, there's less investment happening. So so this is not so easy as just to say, well, what's happened is America lost its manufacturing base and we moved to a service sector economy, and that explains the malaise. You're suggesting that this is sort of across industry, service sector, or manufacturing
14: the old service sector companies the big ones actually looked exactly like the manufacturing ones. so a company like AT&T which delivered a service telephony or a company like Hilton Hotels which delivered a service accommodation before the eighties typically owned their physical capital and hired people directly but now there's more of a a, what I say a franchise structure where you've got the owner of the intellectual property leasing their brand to the company or people that deliver the actual service. But actually, all these people are subcontractors. In effect, they're a bottom-level company, sometimes working for other people, sometimes working for themselves. And so the shift is not from manufacturing to services, but from being a direct employee of these big companies to being either a contractor or the employee of a smaller company. And in terms of malaise, the significance of this shift is that Because of American labor law, 1974, Employee Retirement Income Security Act, if a company gives benefits to one employee, it has to give benefits to all employees. So if you shove employees out and make them subcontractors, you're not on the hook anymore for health, for pension, for any other benefits you might be offering your key personnel. Right. A lot of people out in the cold.
1: And so um, the the response to this, the response to this phenomenon that you're describing and documenting historically... Um, I've seen some in uh, conservative circles touting this as um, sort of an argument for some level of industrial policy to um, right the level of investment in that companies are making and particularly in sensitive sectors where we want to be more independent than we have been as we saw the argument goes with respect to the COVID outbreak in our position even though we have big pharma our position with Core medicines uh, uh, and and the ingredients to core medicines uh, that we were outsourcing to China. This has been an argument to to say we need to be more Fortress America and less globalist in our outlook with respect to business, and so that requires government industrial policy. What's your reaction to that?
14: Two different things here. One is that for things that really matter for national security, which obviously these days includes a big chunk of the health sector post COVID you really want to have an onshore production capacity. And the pharmaceutical industry is no different from any of these other ones I'm talking about. They typically source the the non-patented ingredients for drugs from China or India. And then they actually subcontract a lot of the actual manufacturing of drugs to third parties like uh, Teva, the generic companies. And then they slap their patent label on the drug and sell it at a high price And that clearly creates problems if you have something like an epidemic. Same thing with semiconductors, which are crucial for an uh, electronics-based defense establishment. In the big picture, these things um, are relatively small in terms of their effects with respect to economic growth. To really get uh, growth going again, you need um, the government actually to do some of what it did back in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. And that's directly spend money on... um, and these days it would be rehabilitation of infrastructure and the build-out of some new infrastructure. People who are caught in traffic jams, I think, understand this intuitively. There's simply not enough capacity in infrastructure, and people who are struggling with their kids doing remote learning also understand this intuitively. There's simply not enough broadband capacity in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. These are obvious um, uh, sectors where the government could step in with either direction or direct investment, and these would create a lot of jobs.
1: And, and but with respect to um, our innovative sectors, I mean, again, uh, a big our big pharma, as we've uh, recognized during coma, big pharma industry that's uh, often the subject of uh, much criticism, has sort of found some renewed uh, reputational equity because of the push for therapeutics and a vaccine to COVID, for example, and and again, it's um, the envy of the world, our our pharmaceutical sector, generally speaking. And sort of obviously the same thing with big tech, all the big tech companies uh, that have sprouted up in, in America. So it seems to me we're, we're still innovating and we want to innovate, even if that a lot of that is not as vertically integrated as it used to be. But what you're suggesting is just sort of, the larger landscape on which everybody operates could be improved by the government, the so-called public good argument, uh, such that it would improve the productivity of uh, businesses across sectors.
14: Right. I only halfway agree with you here. And the the half is we do have a very productive and innovative economy. The disagreement is who, who actually is doing that. So if you look at big pharma, big pharma basically does not do much as much in the way of research and development as you would think. And they certainly don't do, as much in the area of research and development um, as you would think, looking at the, the scale of profits they make. Most of the innovative drug development these days is done by small biotech companies. Mm. Most of them are funded by NSF and I, NIH in their first rounds. Um, and then they find, um, you know, an angel investor or a, a venture capital firm for the next round. And it's only then when they have a commercializable product that the big pharma steps in and, um, and usually uh, does an acquisition hire, aqua hire,
1: is that, brings is, these people
14: in-house, and then... Is that a bad what, model? So it's a it's a bad model in the following sense. It's not obvious what Big Pharma is, is being paid for. We want the innovation. That would be an argument for doing more NIH, more NSF funding. Um, what Big Pharma is good at is the clinical testing side of it to validate the drug, um, and they should be rewarded for that, but the, the rewards are enormous, and... Um, the pharmaceutical sector captures uh, roughly 4% of all profits generated in the U.S. economy. It's not obvious that that's in proportion to the value they're delivering. And if you flip it around and, and realize, of course, that we all pay for we pay for those profits because we consume those uh, pharmaceuticals and we're paying for it either because our employer is buying us health insurance with, with money that could go to wages or money that could go to uh, investment by the company or we're paying it uh, through taxes, which fund Medicare and Medicaid. So, you know, they're playing with our money, and the question is, do they deliver uh, uh, something in proportion to that?
1: He is a Professor Herman Mark Schwartz, professor in the Department of Politics at the University of Virginia, author of Subprime Nation, American Power, Global Finance, and the Housing Bubble, and I'll tweet out his piece on corporate profit strategies that we were discussing at AmericanAffairsJournal.org as well. Professor Schwartz, thanks for joining us. It.
14: Thank
13: you, Dan. Bye. Take care. You me into you know Yes,
0: do You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network
1: Welcome back to the show. Since we were uh, talking uh, science related to COVID, uh, Earlier in the hour, how about ending with a little bit of social science? Does your personality change as you get older? This from realclerkscience.com. It turns out that uh, personality is a developmental phenomenon. It's not just a static thing that you're stuck with. It can't get over, according to Brent Roberts, who's a psychologist at the University of Illinois. It's not to say you're a different person each day you wake up. In the short term, change can be nearly imperceptible. There have been a number of longitudinal studies, I'll have you know that have looked at the change in personality over time. In uh, the journal uh, Psychological Bolton, researchers analyzed the results of 152 longitudinal studies on personality, which followed participants ranging in age from childhood to their early 70s. Each of these studies measured uh, trends in the big five personality traits. You know the big five. Extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, openness to experience, neuroticism. And uh, researchers find, uh, doing uh, some meta-analyzing, meta-anal- the pattern um, that uh, individuals level each personality trait tended to stay consistent within each decade of life. The pattern of consistency begins around a- age three, uh, said uh, one psychological professor at Michigan State. They don't um, measure personality traits in the same way for children as they do adults. They look at temperament the intensity of a person's reactions. A shy three-year-old acts a lot different than a shy 20-something, but there is an underlying core. So here's the upshot. Early temperament seems to affect later life experiences. For example, a 1995 study found that to children that followed children from the age of 3 to 18, for instance, children who were shyer and more withdrawn earlier in life tended to grow into unhappier teenagers. However, what happens over time is personality tends to get better, Psychologists calling it the maturity principle. People become more extroverted, emotionally stable, agreeable, conscientious as they grow older. Uh, and uh, sometimes over time, the changes are, are, are quite pronounced. Thus, the phrase grow up that is often directed your way by your elders. Uh, the maturity principle applies to everyone. Allegedly, it makes the personality change even harder to recognize in our in in ourselves uh, because you're changing just at the same time that everyone else is changing per the maturity principle. Evidence suggests that uh, the change is not dramatic life events, such as marriage or the birth of a child or the loss of a loved one. Um, Some psychologists actually suggest these events reinforce your personality as you bring your characteristics with you to the particular situation. In other words, you're prepared for the road. You don't prepare the road for you. Sort of the same admonition for child rearing. Changing expectations is what modifies our personality. We adjust to university, the workforce, starting a family. Um, all of those things, uh, you know, modify our conduct to abide our responsibilities and context. It makes sense. A lot of times science is commonsensical. A lot of common sense needs to be applied. That's here. I consider myself an outlier. I didn't have a personality when I'm three and I still don't. Interesting research nonetheless. This is... But another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. Please do so again tomorrow where we'll get into more RNC review and analysis.
0: This is the Dan Prof Show.